Welcome to A Break in the Action, where we take a break from the business of our days to focus on outdoor pursuits and the traditional sporting lifestyle. Join us for discussion and interviews on vintage and modern break-action shotguns, sporting literature, outdoor leisure, and reviews of best-in-class gear, accessories, and destinations. So pour yourself a drink. Sit back, relax, and let's take a break in the action. Now here's your host, Shotgun collector, wing shooter, and sporting clays enthusiast, Ryan Dowdy. Pheasant hunting in the U.S. can take on many forms. I'm most familiar with dogs, usually pointers, on the ground, ranging wide to locate and then point birds. Once the dog is on point, hunters are offered relatively close shots at birds hell-bent on escaping. Maybe you're more accustomed to group hunts where some push in a coordinated way through a field and others block with guns ready. Depending on when the birds feel inclined to try to escape through the air, shooting distances usually range from close to moderate. There's another method, though, that can stretch a shooter's skill to the limit, driven pheasant. The origins of driven pheasant shooting take us back again to England a few hundred years ago. During this time, landowners sought ways to manage game populations on their estates while also entertaining guests. Pheasants, introduced as game birds from Asia, flourished in the British countryside due to suitable habitat and ample food sources. Planning and preparing for a true driven pheasant shoot is a year-round affair. Habitat at the estates must be properly managed. Birds must be matured in a way that protects them from predation, but allows them to remain wild. The day of the shoot can involve scores of workers, volunteers, and dogs. I recently heard the wonderful Duchess of Rutland mention that as many as 100 are involved when they host a shoot day at Beaver Castle. It's a full-time affair, and for the most part, it isn't a practical undertaking in the U.S. There are tower shoots across the country that do offer guns the chance to shoot at high-flying pheasants. Let me just say right now that this episode we're going to be describing something completely different than that. Besides the distance from muzzle to bird, what we're going to describe today shares no similarities to a basic tower shoot. I was invited to take part in the annual Christmas Grand Batuu shoot at Green Acres Sportsman's Club in Roberts, Illinois. Green Acres, as you'll hear, is a vast, over 1,000-acre, multifaceted club that offers a complete range of hunting, live wing shooting, recreational sporting clays, and gun dog training services. Dan and Cindy Erke have built a team including renowned English shooting instructor and gun fitter Keith Coyle. This wasn't my first visit to Green Acres and Keith has become a good friend over the years. In this special episode, I want to offer my best description of this extra special experience. Understanding that we're limited to words and sounds on this podcast, let me also encourage you to check out some of the photos that we've posted on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Whether an authentic driven pheasant shoot in England is on your bucket list, or you're just looking for something new and unique to add to your shooting calendar next year, you owe it to yourself to give this a try. Before we hear about the Grand Batu, it's only fitting that this podcast, a shotgun-centered podcast, bring along some shotguns that measure up to this shooting event. 
Before I give you the details on those, we need to understand what we need these guns to do. Living somewhere between a target shotgun and your field gun lies a true English style game gun. In our case, both are going to be 12 gauge, 30 inch barrel over and unders. The guns need to have enough weight to soak up the recoil of 150 to 200 shots, but not be so heavy as to fatigue the shooter. Similarly, spec'd side-by-sides would absolutely be appropriate, but as you've heard me say before on this podcast, I shoot an over and under better, and I'm more comfortable with one. The guns that we'll be shooting, I'm going to bet are new, or at least relatively new to you, and I'll come out and say right now that they're expensive. Justifying cost won't be part of this conversation. As a shotgun enthusiast listener, I know that you can appreciate things about bog-standard low-priced doubles, one that you may never want to actually own, all the way up to guns with price tags in the highest stratospheres that represent the best that is being made by the top makers. So what are they? On this trip, we'll be shooting the new Beretta SL3 and the Christian Hunter over and under from Connecticut Shotgun. As we make our way through this two-part episode, we'll discuss detailed specs on each of these fine guns as well as the shooting experience. I also want to introduce you to someone. As I've done on podcast adventures in the past, I've brought along a good friend. Chris Pierce is a bird dog owner, hunter, shotgun fanatic, and a competitive shooter. A really good one. He isn't just along for the ride, though. Chris will be offering his opinions on both the Grand Batu experienced as well as these two fine shotguns. So let's get started, and let's start at the beginning. Keith encouraged each of the 10 guns to arrive around 9 a.m. Morning, folks. Breakfast was to be served at 9.30, and this would allow time for the shooters to reconnect with old friends and make new acquaintances. I will say that of the group of 10 shooters, I recognized three faces from past shoots I had participated in. You might think this is just something that you want to try once, but be warned, you'll want to come back. Repeat guests are common, and I'm glad to say that I'm one of them. Let me now bring Keith and Chris onto the podcast. Keith, I want to start off with you. On shoot day, you instructed us to arrive 30 minutes before breakfast started, but I'm guessing that wasn't the beginning of your day or getting ready for this shoot. In a nutshell, what, what all is involved in preparing for a typical Grand Batu shoot day? Well, uh, the actual process starts literally 48, two days before, 48 hours before. Um, where I'm working with uh, young Hunter, our great young gamekeeper. And of course, one of the things that uh, we're continually monitoring is the, the wind speeds and the wind direction. Uh, it doesn't affect our driven ducks quite so much, but I'm sure you can imagine that obviously with the tower release, uh, we try and make sure that the guns are, are going to be in the uh, bird flight path that obviously the wind will push them. So we start with looking at that. Then the next thing, we have to go out, uh, and it, this is where the, the, the physical work comes in. We, we, we've got the pegs around the, the tower locations and the waterway. So we get out there, we start making sure everything's uh, spick and span. Uh, might even need a bit of a touch-up on stain with the uh, peg posts, you know, retopping them. Um, and then getting the numbers out. So we, we get the numbers out, we get it planned. Then really the next day for me, the Friday, before any or the day before any shoot, I then almost become restaurant manager. I then plan and 
get the tables laid, I get everything ready for the uh, kitchen and serving staff to be able to uh, prepare and plan laying the tables for breakfast, then lenses, and then finally how the table settings go for the gala dinner in the evening. Uh, I've been in touch with our piper, giving him times for when he needs to be there as we, of course, have the tradition of piping the birds um, post the dinner. And then he'll come and pipe the entree, the main course, the meat course, as was always traditional, uh, around the table during dinner, just like many people have seen it happen in Downton Abbey uh, when they're in Scotland. So we, we do that. And then at that Friday, I eventually get back home and my very last job on the day before the shoot has become a little bit of a, a suspicion, I suppose. But it, I always, the last job on the night before the shoot is to get my boots out and I clean my boots. Uh, I think that maybe comes from my days as a, uh, obviously with, with the British Army. Of course, the night before the parade, the last thing you always do was, was clean your boots. Once that's done, then it's up early for me. Obviously, we're, we're, we're Brenda and I, because she's, she's now going to head up the, uh, the kitchen staff, the kitchen brigade. So I'm normally then on site around about 6.30. Um, as we are going to use our simulated tower for a warm-up, uh, my uh, good second man, my right-hand man, Jim, Big Jim Briggs, um, we go off and now we have to test the uh, clay targets, the simulated targets off the tower. First thing we do, we have to make sure that firstly the targets and the, if you like, the rotation, the spread of the targets are feeding all of the pegs and most importantly that the clays are clearing the heads of the guns. As you know, they go over the guns and we must make sure they fall safely behind the gun so again wind direction is a big thing once that's done i get a little bit of time um i i just get back try and get a cup of coffee sit and relax for a little while um in readiness to greet the guns from when they start arriving generally from about eight forty-five onward. right right um, well well you you took my bait on that perfectly thank you what i wanted to get at is that from the guest standpoint, everything goes off perfectly. And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens as a result of a lot of planning and um, and a lot of work. Yeah, Chris, this was your first time, both at the Green Acres property and also participating in a shoot like this. Um, what were your initial impressions when we pulled onto the property and then when we made our way into the clubhouse for, for breakfast? Yeah, so being from the Midwest, Indiana, and pretty familiar with the terrain of Indiana, Illinois, mostly, mostly typically it's a uh, flat cornfields or beans. Right. This time of year, it's usually plow fields. Uh, prior to even getting to the facility, I, I noticed as we we're getting closer, I could uh, tell that something was changing. And I looked over to the, maybe the North side of the road and just saw an expansive, uh, fields of, of prairie grass, uh, pine trees, and other hardwoods. And it was very different than anything in the area. And you could tell, it was, I was curious if it was the uh, is the uh, facility, but uh, it, lo and behold, it was. And we got closer and closer, and it just got more and more interesting and exciting. So uh, we pulled in, and 
right right away when we pulled in there were uh, dog handlers out with the labs going yeah uh black labs and some uh like golden retrievers and so we knew i knew i was gonna put in any place and so we uh had folks heading into the the main building there and walked in there it was uh all christmasy and it's yeah. an amazing, yeah. amazing site. So that was my first impression. Yeah, it really does. The property really does kind of spring up out of the surrounding topography there. Um, it, it really stands out. And then, you know, everything uh, on the property is is really, really first class. Yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, yep. Keith and his team really do a great job of presenting what feels like as true a shoot day um, in England as you're going to find uh, in the United States. And, and I, I just want to say, if you're considering a shoot like this, you need to remember that while it might not involve year-round management of the estate and dozens of people to prepare for shoot day, there's still a ton of work involved to deliver an experience that feels this authentic. Um, really, from the moment you arrive for breakfast, no detail has been overlooked. I think Keith has a great feel for these details, and, and he's really uniquely qualified because of his shoot managing experiences at various estates in in the UK and um, and frankly all around the world. So let's talk about your part for a minute. As a guest, you're primarily there to enjoy yourself. You're certainly going to bring along one of your favorite doubles to shoot, but what about your clothes? I have several episodes that describe appropriate dress for a shoot like this. Make sure you check them out if you haven't yet. Take some time and put in some effort into dressing for the day. I promise that if you invest in a pair of breeks, a tweed jacket, and a cap, you may not wear them another single day all year, but you will look at them fondly remembering this day. I'm definitely odd in that I have two complete five-piece tweed shooting suits. That's not normal. On my last Grand Batu shoot, I wore tweeds from Purdy in their house pattern. This year, I wore a suit from Barber of London in their double twist tweed. Again, this isn't normal, but I will say that I bought both of these heirloom quality garments on eBay. The purdy suit needed a bit of tailoring, but the barber suit fit perfectly. Boots can be of the rubber or leather welly variety. Dewberry and Lishamo are great options here. Or a dressier option if the day will be drier are an English leather field boot. Purdy, again, has beautiful options here, but they're, of course, pricey. A company in England named Field & More has really nice English field boots at a better price point. Whatever you choose, make sure they're comfortable. You won't necessarily be walking much over the course of the day, but you will be on your feet. Other interesting bits of gear that are somewhat unique to an experience like this would be an English-style gun slip and cartridge bag. A company called Crutes of England offers great options of top quality. Gloves are recommended as you are going to heat up your barrels. You might also see shooters with a chest-high walking stick, usually topped with an antler branch or a ram's horn. These are mainly used to keep your gear off the ground. The day we shot, it rained, and it rained steady. Having the ability to keep your leather gun slip off the ground and out of the mud is a must. I'll stress again. If there's ever a time to step a bit out of your comfort zone and do your part to complete the experience, it's now. So back to the clubhouse. I love how in a setting like this, men and women come from different backgrounds, but the simple fact that they're there and obviously share similar interests make them feel familiar to you right when you first meet them. Conversations come easy with like-minded men and women. Keith, 
After getting to know the other guns a bit and, and enjoying a wonderful breakfast, you provided some instruction on what each of us could expect. Yep. Give us a rundown of the full itinerary of the day and some of the instruction that you provided after breakfast. When we've got this day, which was what we call the mixed bag shoot, this means we were going to shoot both the driven pheasant or release tower pheasant and, of course, our proper driven mallard so it's what we call a mixed bag shoot so from people arriving we have breakfast then uh, as once people have finished eating they've all had a good chat got to know each other um, i will then run through the itinerary of the day uh, timings roughly what we're going to experience where we're where will we be traveling to how we're going to get there so once that's done um, I then just try and cover one doesn't want to, one assumes that of course most of these guns the good majority of the guns of course are uh, experienced shooters in one way or another but shooting driven targets off a tower and we, we had three people three guns on that day that this was going to be their first live shoot they'd done the right thing by coming along during the summer to uh, two of the Downton days, the simulated shoots, so, so they they got into it. But this was going to be a first day. Now, of course, regardless of whether you're an experienced gun or uh, a new gun, the safety brief is, of course, standard. We, we go through it every time, just as a reminder, because for me, Working with a tower has always been something I've, I've had to develop and get used to because in England I just have one line of guns with the birds being pushed over. But here I have guns located all around the circumference of the tower generally. So the most important thing is one has to remind shooters that in the height of the action you must never shoot a low bird. Any bird that has that can be shot must have what I call a 360 degree of clear sky around it. And it must be on the ascent, not a bird that is, as you, you know, we, all our towers are concealed in the trees. So that and it's designed for the birds to lift out from the tower. And then almost if you want, they have to bomb burst. They have to climb up this small uh, funnel and then they come out over the trees. So when they come out, they are actually climbing. They're starting to accelerate to climb. But on the odd occasion, you might get one bird that comes out for whatever reason, gets caught or tangled in some of the uh, branches. And of course, it will drop early. So you have to remind guns that once that bird has dropped below what I call the tree line horizon, you can't shoot it. No, no low birds. It becomes dangerous. So that's one of the most important things that you remind people that might be, you know, around the other side of the tower. Um, we've not only got guns, but we also have retrievers. So it's very important that everybody understands that uh, no low shoots, you know, no low shots, no turning and uh, a full 180 degrees to shoot to the rear, because then you're going to be shooting over the heads of the retrievers the bird is going to be descending. So obviously we, we let people know, please don't do that. Um, I generally then give instructions on keeping your gun up, which is most important because the, the birds are up in the sky. That's where the barrels need to be pointed. And also about 
what I would call making contact with the bird. It, with driven shoots, many people haven't experienced these great deal. So the most important thing, the bird is coming at you. So you really need to place your barrel or make contact with the bird on the head because that's where you want to shoot it. You want to cleanly kill it. So you shoot it, you know, make contact with the head. And if you need to pull away from it to create a, di a picture of distance in front, that's fine. So you come on to the bird, shoot it, you know, uh, make sure you contact the face and the chest before you pull away. That means, of course, that the pellets are going to enter the bird and kill it hopefully cleanly. But it's very important and very sporting to take two shots at the same bird. For instance, um, you'll hear me, no, you'll, they'll hear me shout out tail feathers um, on a shot where, of course, you see the feathers fly out the tail, the gun has underled it. And the most important thing is to keep the gun moving and take a second shot. It, it's the sporting thing to do. Because eventually, if you have missed that first one, the momentum of the barrels itself and in the swing of the shot, generally the second shot brings the bird down. So we, we talk about that. So two things, you know, two shots of the bird, make good contact with the head and the chest, no low shooting. And always I say, if you're in doubt, don't shoot. That's the most important thing. If you're in doubt, don't shoot. There's always another bird. Um, so simple things to remember, particularly in the height of the action. You know, our adrenaline gets up and, and, it's, and it's very exciting. Um, so we, I try and give simple rules and suggestions that will help the gun enjoy the day, hopefully help the gun be successful and at the same time most importantly the gun remains safe well that those are some of the things that really enter into the brief we, we, we you know i put some things in most importantly of course i have to tell guns no ground game um for instance you know don't go shooting a, a, a rabbit or even a pheasant that's walking on the ground no, no ground game and of course do not if if there's a wounded pheasant or bird that then nests or settles into a tree Please don't shoot it. Uh, if the bird is in distress, then the retriever will contact me. He'll let me know there's a bird in distress. And then I will give him the OK for the gun to be asked to go and dispatch the bird cleanly. So things like that are very important. I try and make it evident safety is paramount, but without being... How can I put it, you know, over, you know, over, you know, don't want to be put people off. We want people to have a good time. Um, sometimes for, for those on the first shoot, it's always a bit challenging. Uh, my job is uh, when I'm out in the field to shoot captain, not only to control the release of the birds and the way we all move, but on occasion, just for me, if I see a gun who is being a bit tentative, a, a little uh not nervous but conscious i'll just go up and have a quiet word in their ear put a reassuring hand on their shoulder and there's nothing like the reassurance is that when they once they've hit their first bird it all changes so again i'm i'm there so i'm trying to uh i control the shoot i'm watching the guns making sure everybody's safe but at the same time making sure that everybody achieves success you know, regardless if it's their first shoot or their 22nd. Yep. Yep. And, and if I remember, um, then the last thing that we did before heading out was, um, drawing for our peg. Do you want to, um, 
You want to explain that process? Well, it goes back, of course, to driven shooting in the UK. And normally, on a shoot in the UK, you would only have a team of between what we call what what we call a team of eight to nine guns, and they would actually be spread in a line, a direct line. And what you do is during the day you will shoot maybe three or sorry four or five different drives at different locations. Now, uh, putting your peg number, that's the number on which the, the first place, your first place on the first drive, that's where you're going to shoot. So if you pull peg number three, you're going to be number three. But then, uh, as we do on the different rotations, as you would do on a different drive, the tradition is you move two pegs up. So if you're peg one, on the next drive you'll be three, the next drive you'll be five. Because this ensures that at some point you will have uh, a good shooting spot. You're, you're going to shoot in all locations. Now, of course, in the UK, when I'm running a shoot, I have a gamekeeper at the other end of uh, the radio. And he has a team of beaters. So if, for instance, during a drive, I know there's maybe one position that hasn't seen a lot of the birds, I could maybe get the gamekeeper to direct some of the beaters to try and emphasize pushing the birds in the direction of that 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 shooter and again it's very much like here obviously i have a a circle it's uh, quite different for me i have to watch the i'm watching the tops of the trees the wind direction i'm watching we have great our gamekeeper and his staff are absolutely excellent chaps and I'm constantly in contact with him in the tower. So for instance, if you're on peg three and it's a little bit barren of birds, subject to obviously any strong headwinds, you know, I can ask or I can get the uh, gamekeeper and his team to, if you like, encourage birds to fly in that direction. Now the peg, the drawing of the peg in actual fact is very traditional. And I'm sure most Americans know the phrase, uh, the luck of the draw. Well, that's actually what it refers to. Because you see, when you pick a peg, if you get a lucky number, may, eventually you, you could become the bird magnet, no matter whatever <laughs> drive you're on. And I've seen this so many times that no matter what peg you're on, whether you're on one, next drive is, is three or five, the birds fly over you. Um, and I, I'm always, it's, it's true. Regrettably, there's always some poor chap um, that really he he doesn't see hardly any birds at all. They seem to avoid him no matter where he goes. Um, so it's but it's the luck of the draw. You draw a lucky peg, you're going to have great shooting all day. Mm. Um, so that's what it does. But but it does ensure that you're moving around into different locations where we have our towers. The, the backdrop, uh, you, you can only move three pegs or two pegs. And the, believe it or not, the backdrop of the horizon that you're looking at completely changes. Right. The tree line changes. The elevation changes. So it's really great. You know, you, you do create this scenario where even here, if you move to a different peg, it's like completely moving to another part of the estate, as you would in England. So uh, luck of the draw, get a good lucky number. But... 
to be honest, I'm very proud to say that uh, we can pretty much make sure um, everybody always ends up in the hot seat at some point or other during the drive. Yeah, well, I can I can definitely attest that I felt busy and active um, <laughs> at every peg um, that I that I was standing at all day. So then, at this point, we loaded up our gear and ourselves into the gun bus. And we head out to our warm-up and, and first drive of the day. Um, Keith, do you want to describe how you like to start the day off um, on clay targets for the shooters? Well, what we've done, I, one of the great things that uh, I've been able to enjoy is with the setting up the simulated-driven shoots. Now, what happened, uh, and this is Dan Erke, I have to say, was so far-sighted. I mean, it was a big gamble when he brought me over, and, of course, it was a gamble for me coming over. But we talked about doing the simulated driven uh, purely because until I got there, knowing that Illinois was pretty flat, it, it, it was going to be something, uh, doing driven birds was going to be some something rather demanding. Anyway, so we, we have the, the, the main tower uh, in the woods. Now, the main tower has three... Uh, for better expression, wobble traps on them, two standards and a midi. And uh, they're on a timer um, and they uh, constantly are moving uh, left to right. The great thing is we, on the top of the tower, these traps sit on what I call the radar. It's uh, an A-frame. Believe it or not, this A-frame is on wheels, it's on casters. And we can, we can rotate that frame 360 degrees. And we have pegs set and drive set all the way around the tower because, again, it, we are very much, you know, dominated by wind speed and direction. But the great thing is, with these targets coming over the trees, as they're going over the guns, they're still accelerating, which is what a natural bird will do. So they go over the guns, and of course, they're not flat. We, we, we set the traps at an angle to uh, emulate literally or simulate a climbing pheasant which is what you get over the trees so we do that the other thing we we've got is brilliant we have um a teleboom uh which uh, as you've seen it's one of the uh, mobile access platforms we can move that around and we've got two traps on that and that is a complement we use that in with the big tower so we, we've got five traps constantly throwing these these birds and, re and really truly replicating a proper drive as you would get in the UK. Right, right, and that and that's case in point. Even just this warm up portion of the day um, is is really challenging and and kind of keeps that authentic feel. As a quick aside, you guys also host a fully simulated day there uh, with only clay targets. Do you want to describe that really quick? On our Downton Day, our simulated day, we we cre recreate in a sense, the British driven shooting season in one day. Now, when you come on a simulated day, you will shoot your first drive is simulated driven moorland grouse. And we have, as you've seen, a line of six moorland uh, grouse butts sunk into the ground. That, that they, they are properly sunken grouse butts um, in the line. And we create driven grouse. Now these come at you low and fast. Now we have another machine we lovingly call the war wagon. That's got a set of four oscillating timer traps on it. So we, we 
uh, and we can adjust the height on these targets because these are going to come over here. These are pretty head skimming birds as real grouse are. So we put the war wagon out. So we centralize that. Now we've got six butts. So we've got to spread the, the, the targets over these six guns. So on the grouse butts, we normally end up with at least eight traps. We've got the four oscillating on the war wagon. We bring in the teleboom. We've got two traps on that. So that brings us up to six. And then I've, we, we add at least two more traps. Um, so we have a bank of eight. Now, the great thing is the controller that I have enables me to uh, release all of those birds in, in complete braces and coveys. I can release two, four, six, and then I can put a whole covey over everybody's head with a full eight in the air. And of course, don't forget the, the, the four traps in the middle of those are the ones that are oscillating. So it really, I am incredibly proud. It is a real proper uh, driven grouse, but uh, driven shoot as maybe you might see on Downton Abbey. So we do that first, but then our, the, the war wagon and our boom is mobile. So the next drive I recreate is what I call East Anglian grey leg partridge commonly known as hedgehoppers at home. So we move the guns around. We have another location, which truly is, it looks like, it looks like Suffolk in England. It's brilliant. Um, we call it River Tree Bend. Uh, again, we take the guns around on the other side of the creek. The, bird, the war wagon is hidden behind trees on the opposite side of the creek. And then we put the, the boom up. Now that goes up now. So we, we throw in a couple of high birds. So grey partridge, again, I've, we've got six traps throwing there. Um, we then stop for elevenses, of course, the midday break. Uh, we move up then to the tower. We move into one location. And I would say we try and emulate um, early pheasant, you know, October English pheasant. Um, and then the final drive, we will uh, move the radar, as I call it. We'll move the guns into another location around the tower. And because of the topography where the ground drops away obviously the tower is now higher and the birds are higher we end up shooting pheasants at what i call um november december height so you you're shooting these four drives and each time but it, it's really the whole british driven season all in one day and, uh, and i'm i'm just so pleased i'm just so proud of it yeah. it's just and, and and you've shot it yeah it, it's a lot of fun. It's just great fun. Right. Um, whether you're shooting it as simulated birds or whether you're shooting it, it's just brilliant fun. Um, and I, of course, uh, I do tend to get quite involved. I, I am known for my running commentary throughout the drives. And it's, it's just great fun. And I'm very, very proud of it. And it's a great way. I've all... A lot of the guns that now are regular guns on our driven, our live driven shoots have all been introduced by coming on the simulated day. And it's like we do that in the morning. You know, you did the first shoot because, again, remember, I had some new guns. And what this does is it, it, it gives them the visualize of, of the type of the height of the birds they're going to be shooting yeah. and the speed at which they're going to be shooting. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of yep. your Downton Day shoots. Yep. Um, but, but getting back to the Grand Batu, so <clears throat> with, with muscles warmed up a bit 
um, and with a chance to kind of stretch out on some some high overhead clay targets, we again loaded up the gun bus to head to the first live bird portion of the day. So again, trying my best to give you a real feel for what this is like to stand on a peg and participate in a shoot like this, we set up several microphones to capture the sounds and the overall pace of the shooting. Now, you'll spend about 10 minutes at each peg on your rotation, but here is an edited down clip from our first drive of the day. Now, I wish you joy of the day. Stand by guns! Load! Birds, over! Over! Here they come! Go on, Ninja, over, guys! Unlucky. Over! Over! Taken! Nice shot! Oh, taken! Nice shot! Coming round! Over! Thank you, guns! Unload! Well, as you can hear, each release is fast-paced, and there are a lot of birds in the air. Shooting tower-release pheasants isn't anything that's too unique in the U.S., but what I really like is how Green Acres does this. Every effort is made to conceal the tower and then to offer as natural a view of the birds coming in as possible. Chris, you shoot a ton of sporting clays in Fatask. What what were your original thoughts on the tower release pheasants? Well, it was new to me, and um, it was it was a lot more than what I thought it would be in terms of the height, the speed. Yeah, uh, adding the wind to it a little bit created some pretty uh, difficult shots, but it was uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, it's not a shot. It's not a shot that I do a lot of. And it took me a little while to get into a rhythm. I think that's what uh, Keith even said. You had to sort of hum your way through it a little bit and keep keep your motion right in time. Um, and I thought it was really it was difficult, but once you kind of got your your feet underneath you and the rhythm going, it was uh, it was fun. And um, I didn't hit as many as I'd like to, but but I did get manage to get a few. Yeah, they they were challenging shots. I mean, definitely definitely challenging shots. Yeah, and and the layout was really nice because, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you, they just would come over the tree line, and that's all you could see. And right. the birds were, were going going pretty fast, yep. even with or without the wind. Yeah, so it was a, it was a challenging shoot. It was very interesting. Yeah, right, right. So let's take a break from the shooting for a few minutes and discuss shotguns. As I mentioned earlier, we were lucky to bring two premium game guns with us for review. The first one that I want to discuss is the Beretta SL3. Here are the rundown of the specs. Our gun was a 12-gauge, 30-inch barreled over and under, multi-choked with flush-fitting Beretta Optima HP chokes. This shotgun is a 3-inch chambered box lock with pinless and screwless side plates. The side plates are actually friction fit by hand, one of the first indications of the amount of handwork that went into this gun. Our gun had a single selective trigger with the same hammer leaf spring design on the DT-11. Honestly, I'd love to see this gun offered without a barrel selector on the safety slide. I know this is standard on all doubles these days, but I don't think it's used. This is really a classically styled shotgun, and I think cleaning up that safety slide just a bit would be a nice and unique touch. The barrels are fitted with Beretta's proven monoblock design. 
They have a solid side rib and then a uniquely designed ventilated top rib. It sits lower and is less obvious than most ventilated top ribs, and I think it's really a nice touch. The rib was a 6mm parallel rib with no taper and a small brass front bead. The forend was an English field style with a Dealey style lever release. The forend length was 10.25 inches and our gun weighed in right at 8 pounds. The stock was beautifully figured and nicely finished piece of Turkish walnut with crisp hand checkering. The Prince of Wales style grip was nicely swept back and was thick enough to fill your hand for control without looking bulky. This gun ships with a stunning and unique canvas and leather case made in-house at the Beretta factory. Chris, let's first talk about the overall aesthetics of this shotgun. Um, I shared some pictures of this gun with you when I first got it. What was your initial opinion of its looks? And then what were your thoughts on its design and, and overall build quality after spending some time with it at the shoot? Well, uh, the pictures that you sent were, I, I wasn't sure to what extent this gun was going to be in person, but the pictures were amazing. You had it compared up against a couple other guns, so it was really a, a stunning piece. When we got there and you took it out, um, put my hands on it, it was really, as as what appeared in the pictures, it was very nice. It was The wood was uh, beautiful, well-finished. Uh, I like the grip. I've got a little bit bigger set of hands. Filled my hand well, but not to the degree that it was clunky or bulky and just the overall overall appearance was uh was beautiful it was a very sophisticated looking gun i agree 100 percent. I, th- I think beretta really hit a home run um with this shotgun this is a gun that has so many unique lines and and just kind of extra details again this is this is really hard to convey on a podcast but these differences really do pop out when you see it in pictures or certainly um, certainly in person, the lines where the action meets the head of the stock and, and just kind of the extra contours where the forend iron meets the forend wood, um, each one of these just requires extra levels of, of handwork and, and hand fitting. Um, I especially also like the polished portions of the side plates um, that were kind of laid in with the uh, with the other uh, uh, parts that were engraved. They, they really kind of complement those sweeping uh, sweeping lines of the action. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the overall looks of the SL3. Um, any other any other thoughts uh, initial thoughts from you on it? Yeah yeah I think the, it was a it was a good looking gun. It, it weight was I would say ideal for the application that we were going to use it in right so right. And you had to shoot a little heavier load. You need a little, little longer um, sight plane. Yep. Uh, I think it was an excellent choice for for the driven game yep. that we were at. Yep. So let's discuss the shooting experience with the SL3. Um, I was actually the first one to get a chance to shoot it um, that morning at the uh, at the warm up rotation on clay targets. I thought the gun felt really good in hand and um, felt to be a perfect fit, um, as you said for for the day. Um, when the first target started coming that w- coming my way, I shouldered the SL3, and I touched off the trigger, and click. And then I touched off the second barrel, and another click. Um, so we, we fiddled with the barrel selector and inspected the primers on the shot shells. There was absolutely nothing, uh, no light primer strike, nothing. Um, I finally got a chance to call Ian at the Breda Gallery in Manhattan, who actually had sent me the gun for review. And almost immediately he realized that the gun had just come from a show 
where firing pins were required to be removed um, uh, for the shotguns that are on display. And they had just, um, in in accidental error, they had never made it back into the SL3. So obviously an honest mistake. This being the case, we aren't able to offer a shooting review of the SL3, at least not yet. Stay tuned, though. I promise that we will get another chance to discuss this beautiful shotgun. And with that, we're going to wrap up the first part of this extended episode. Make sure that you keep listening for part two, where we'll pick up where we left off with Keith at the Christmas Grand Batu and discuss one of my favorite shooting traditions, Elevensies, before making our way to the epic and unforgettable flighted mallard portion of the day. Chris and I will also discuss the Christian Hunter over and under from Connecticut Shotgun, and I promise there will be a shooting review of that fantastic gun included. As we're wrapping up the year, I want to again thank you for listening. Seeing listener numbers surge, interacting with you on our social sites, emails, and phone calls has been amazing. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast. My answer has always been and will still be, keep listening. But if you feel inclined to throw a few dollars our way to offset expenses, I have opened up a Patreon account. As an added bonus, I'll be giving away excellent gear quarterly to one of our Patreon members. Check it out at patreon.com forward slash a break in the action, or you can find the link on our Instagram homepage. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of A Break in the Action. Want to hear your voice on a future episode? Leave a message, ask a question, or suggest a topic on our listener line at 317-662-4520. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and visit us at abreakintheaction.com.